your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. So much has been written and said about leadership, and much of it is just common sense. You know, you need to be smart and driven, flexible, reasonably ethical, and balance reflection with decisiveness. So I haven't felt the need to talk much about leadership on this show. But my wife, Barbara Nemco, and I just finished reading a book on leadership that's motivating me to do a segment on leadership. That book is Pulitzer Prize winner Doris Kearns Goodwin's new book, Leadership. It profiles four presidents, including an under-discussed aspect of leaders. I guess I should tell you which the presidents are. It's Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. Anyway, um, the book kind of excels in my mind in that it includes an under-discussed aspect of leaders, and that is the heavy toll that it takes on them as human beings. And that does comport with my experience as a career coach. Even most highly successful leaders don't have it easy. Often there's a lot of pain that lies beneath that nicely polished public persona and internet presence. So with me to discuss what lies beneath is a leader in her own right, a winner of seven, maybe I've lost track, maybe it's eight by now, (laughs) national awards for her leadership. She is the Napa County Superintendent of Schools, now in her 21st or second year doing it, and my wife, Dr. Barbara Nemco. Barbara, welcome. Thank you, and it's 23rd, but who's counting? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, Barbara, the most vivid image that I have of a leader is of a gray face. Uh, There was a guy who was a senior executive at a, I'll just say, Fortune 500 company who would come to see me at 8 at night, and he was almost always exhausted, and his face was gray. He was proud of having introduced some quality products that had been developed by garage chemists and now are in millions of homes, but he paid the price, the ultimate price. He died in his late 50s. How hard a worker were the four presidents that Doris Kearns Goodwin profiled in her book, Leadership? Well, for the most part, they were very, very hard workers. But, you know, there are leaders and then there are presidents. I think leadership is hard. Being president is a whole lot harder. But, yes, um, they were described as uh, never saw anybody who worked harder, uh, worked 20 hours a day, those kinds of things. Uh, Lincoln was described as somebody who would read and study for hours long after everybody else had gone to sleep. Um, yeah, their presidents are very, very, very hard workers. I found, I took some quotes that just really, frankly, you know, they were not that different. I mean, the lead, the, the corporate and nonprofit and leaders who I have as clients do work a lot, a lot, almost as much, you know, as these presidents. But listen to these quotes that I pulled from the from that book. Um, the first one you mentioned, uh, Lyndon Johnson, and this is a quote: He worked twenty hours a day. He even worked in the bathtub. His secretary Dorothy Nichols recalled, "He never stopped." Continuing the quote: No matter how tired, Lyndon scoured the countryside for votes, even if the car had to travel to a single farm at the end of an unpaved road. 
I'll do one more. Just Well, before you do that, this reminds me of things that we heard at the time, that he would continue working even on the toilet. He would uh, in, insist that his aides came in and he would be giving more orders. That's working too hard. I'm sorry. Well, it may not be that unusual. You know, I, I heard of something like about 40 or 50 percent of people sit on the toilet with their iPhones these days. Yeah, but they're still by themselves. It's bringing someone else <laughs> You're right. I have a real problem with. I want to read one about FDR. During his governorship, his aide, Sam Rosenman, said, quote, I never saw a man who worked harder. In running for vice president, FDR traveled by train to nearly 40 states by train and worked 18 hours a day. In the, this is the part that really got to me. In that campaign alone, he gave more than 800 speeches. Anyway, um, but apart from the hard work... What shocked me in reading the book was that they were actually, a number of them were really, really tough on their workers. And I've seen that in some of my leader clients. They really, they ride their workers very hard. Some are very nice and collaborative and recognize work-life balance. But I, you know, frankly, a lot of my leader clients, they put in 70 hours a week and they're traveling all the time. And so they demand that uh, of their workers. And what, what struck me as the most vivid example and perhaps a little bit hypocritical was Lyndon Johnson because he you know portrayed himself as an advocate for the people but um, this was a quote from Doris Kearns Goodwin's book and she is certainly a liberal it's not like she's trying to portray a liberal as bad but her quote is staff staffer Luther Jones had to get away from Johnson or be devoured by Johnson Gene Latimer lasted a year. I was literally working myself to death. I never took a breath. He worked sometimes 18 hours a day. Not surprisingly, like my client who I was talking about with the gray face, Johnson had three heart attacks, the final one killing him at age 64. Now, Barbara, you, you know, having been a superintendent for so long and you're very involved with the other superintendents and you know you 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 meet with staffers on Capitol Hill you meet with leaders in the corporate sector what has been your experience of leaders or do you are you not close enough to them to really know i think there are as many different kinds of leaders as there are in any other category of life uh, there are people who do work very, very hard. There are some some of my colleagues who are in at six o'clock in the morning, and are working uh, until late in the evening. There are people who do not work that hard. There are, there are some people who are wonderful delegators, and so everything that comes in finds a home, but it's on somebody else's desk. Uh, so it really it depends. Well, there's one leader I know better than any other, and that's Barbara Nemco. Is it a fair statement to say that you are out, depending on the day, 7.30, 8.00, somewhere in there, and then almost every night you're working all the way through some evening event and home at, you know, typically 9.10? Is that an accurate statement? Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's every night. It's probably two or three nights a week. And what about the weekends? Do you, do you, do you attend, do you attend events on the weekends? Often on weekends. But, those, you know, again... Um, there are certain activities that you do as part of your job that are very taxing and wearing on the body. And those are usually times that there are conflicts. 
and right. emotions are involved and and you're having to dealing with that having to deal with that uh going to events uh other than the fact that sometimes I don't get to have dinner until nine o'clock uh it those are fun, and part of it is your own attitude toward doing these things. You can look at it as another obligation and say, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to be here or there. Or you can look at it as a fabulous opportunity. Lucky me, I get to be here or there. So it's like everything else. Some people come out of bad situations and they never get over it. And some people come out of bad situations and they put it behind them. You're listening to work with Marty Nemco. I'm talking with my wife, Dr. Barbara Nemco, and I'm, I don't normally keep saying this, but she's a winner of at least seven national awards for her leadership. We're talking about leadership. Uh, she is in Napa County Superintendent of Schools, and um, we are discussing the human side of being a leader, and what's triggered this is that we read a book that just came out by the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, one of the world's leading biographers, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, her book is Leadership Profiling for Presidents, uh, that is um, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, speaking of Lincoln, you know, apart from the time and the stress and et cetera, uh, what was very eye-opening, um, perhaps for many readers, not for me, because I know what my, my leader clients go through, uh, all four of the presidents that, that Goodwin profiled suffered from... Real, from psychological issues, uh, most notably and perhaps most surprisingly, Abraham Lincoln, who we all view as, you know, maybe because he's in the Mount Rushmore and, of course, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., we view him as a <coughs> rock of solidity. Uh, do, do you want to read that quote uh, or do you want me to? About I'll Lincoln. Read that because that quote, you know which quote you want to read. Okay. Um, again, this is from Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, uh, uh, Leadership, and it's her description of Lincoln's... Oh, psych- sadness. Yeah. You, you got it? Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, read Lincoln it. Lincoln was engulfed by sadness, revealing a pensive, melancholy side to his temperament that became more pronounced as time went by. During a bleak winter in 1840, 32-year-old Abraham Lincoln fell into a depression so profound that his friends feared he might kill himself. They confiscated all knives, razors, and scissors from his room. As one of the chief architects and advocates for his state's expansive plans, Lincoln received the lion's share of the blame for the ensuing catastrophe. The crushing debt crippled the state, destroying its credit rating for years. Land values plummeted, thousands lost homes, banks and brokerage houses closed. Acknowledging that he was, quote, no financier, the doctors believed that Lincoln was within an inch of being a perfect lunatic for life. You know, rather than just you and I, I think this is a great time to bring in listeners. If you, dear listener, uh, is a leader yourself or know a leader very well and want to describe especially the human side, it's all well to give tactics about leadership and whatever, but I'm focusing on the human side of leadership. If you are a leader, I mean, you don't have to be a CEO, but if you're you know, a manager, a leader, or are, you know, know one very well, and you want to chime in about what your experience has been with that leader or as that leader, I invite you to call and join the discussion here at Work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco and KLW. The phone number, 415-841-4134. That's 
1934. Well, let me go back to that quote, because let's think about it. Uh, Any of us, when we make an error, we feel bad about it. When you make an error that affects other people, you feel worse about it. What they're talking about here was getting the blame for uh, a crippling debt that crippled the state. So we're affecting everyone who lives in the state, and now we're the one being blamed for it. So clearly you can understand why he was in a, a profound depression. Anything less would have been not caring. But what got to me was that was merely an example. The, the beginning of the quote says, he was engulfed by sadness, revealing a pensive melancholy side to his temperament that became more pronounced as time yeah. went by. Well, right. Absolutely. So some people have that kind of temperament, and some people are much more happy-go-lucky. In, when you think about the leaders that you've come to know, and again, leaders are so, they get to be leaders in part because they do have this polished veneer. You rarely see a leader cry or, or explode. They're normally, you know, I, I like to watch C-SPAN because it is a parade of the leading government, corporate and nonprofit leaders, and even under great grilling, they seem to have a great calm uh, in their temperament. In the experience that you've had, do, are you in a position to assess whether leaders feel succumb to great psychological stress or have are more prone to depression? Like my, my doctor clients and my lawyer clients are very prone to depression, sadness, drug abuse, insomnia. The pressure is enormous. What have well, you? I, cer- I certainly have known some superintendents who uh, had. I don't think that they ever specifically acknowledged it, but you could see in their behaviors that they were very stressed. Uh, and sometimes it leads to uh, drinking, and sometimes it leads to other kinds of strange behaviors. So, yeah, there are some people who are, but then there are lots of other people who seem to deal with it uh, with equanimity. I don't see them when they go home. I don't know what they do when they get at home. I know, I remember um, having a a doctor once who I thought was absolutely God and then finding out later from his nurse that he was horrible to the staff. So we we only see one side of people very often. Yep. That's the privilege I get from being a, uh, uh, you know, in, in my privacy of my office, I get to see people are paying me so they can be their authentic self. I, you know, I, I started my career as a career counselor in a very unusual way. I was a consultant to college presidents because I had written a book about higher ed. And I'll never forget a president in Pennsylvania said to me, he says, you know, and it's maybe a cliche at this point, but he says it's lonely at the top. He said, you know, we don't have any, we, there's nobody you can trust. There's people fighting for your job or the people who want to tear you down so that they can get their initiative done. You can never be human. You have, you know, and they're also looking at you as an icon. So you're always on. Um, and I'll never forget that. And that, that's you know, an interesting point. And I think that's one of the things I like the most about my job, that as a county superintendent, there are 57 other county superintendents. And we get together four times a year. Mm-hmm. So there is that opportunity to have people who do understand exactly what you're going through because they've been through it or going through it at the same time or figure they will go through it later. Mm-hmm. 
and there is so there are people who do understand what it's like at the top with the the kinds of situations that you face in public education you know i've had a lot of clients who deliberately don't aspire to leadership because they do care more about work-life balance even if they make less money have less status they would rather have time with family on personal maintenance in their creative outlets in their hobbies in exercise uh, um, shopping, watching TV, playing video games, whatever. They say, screw it. Who needs the, you know, who needs that additional stress? I want to work my 40 hours and go home. Um, well, that's true. If one were to look at the salaries of teachers versus administrators, uh, clearly the administrators make a lot more money, but they work many more days a year and many more hours a day. So if you do it on an hourly basis, they probably make less. You know, I'll never forget when BP, we used to be called British Petroleum, BP wanted to have more women in leadership. So they offered all women who were in a position of manager or higher, manager or senior manager, not, not you know, well, they said, we will give you a double jump from, you know, whatever level you are. For if you're a manager, we'll let you leapfrog over. Senior manager, we'll make you a director. If you're a director, we'll make you an entry-level VP. They had, and with, of course, the, the associated increase in salary. Very few took it because the people, many of the women who uh, who were in these middle management positions said, hey, you know what, I'm looking up ahead at the men and women who are in these leadership positions and after taxes, I'm not going to keep much money anyway. And who the hell wants all that more stress? And, you know, Lee, once you reach the higher level, you're traveling a lot. You're not just in your local little office and you go home. You've got to go to the remote office here and you've got to meet with the customer there and see so your way for your family two or three days and you're sitting in traffic to get to SFO and then you're waiting for the, you know, waiting for TSA and you pray your TSA pre and then you're on the tarmac and then it's delayed and, you know, what the hell do I need this for? So I, it's many, I won't say all, but many people would say it's wise to think three times before the standard American way, which is move up. Reactions Definitely. To that? And it also depends on what stage of life you're at. Uh, it's easy for me to be out multiple nights a week because we don't have children at home. Right. If you right. had children, right. now you have a huge additional right. stress, particularly if you're a woman and, and a large, the largest share of the child care either falls upon you or you feel that it does. And if you have to be out at night, you have to figure out child care, and then you feel guilty because you're not home, and your child may say, why are you always, you know, you're never home for dinner. I mean, so there are lots of factors that play into how you can deal with leadership. My intuition is that we should, I should just give you, because uh, i give you the last word. Is there anything more that you would like to say that's perhaps not obvious about leadership that we haven't yet the human side of leadership that we haven't yet discuss, haven't discussed um, yes i think that doris kearns goodwin points out that we tend to think that leaders are smarter than other people and that's not always true uh, sometimes it doesn't take the biggest intellect it takes what's more important is temperament um, and Franklin Roosevelt is an example that she talks about, and she says uh, at the age of 28, when both Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt had already evidenced striking leadership attributes, Franklin had not impressed the partners of his law firm with either his native intelligence, 
his work ethic, or his sense of purpose. Hmm. Yet, when fortune shone on him in the form of a wholly unexpected offer from the top Dutchess County Democratic bosses, John Mack and Edward Perkins, to run for a safe Democratic seat in the state assembly with the full backing of the party, Franklin hastened to accept, revealing a great eagerness to jump into politics. So he hadn't impressed anybody with how clever he was, but when opportunity came, he wasn't afraid. Most people would be afraid. Yeah, reasonable temperament and reasonable risk-taking is certainly critical attributes. But most of the presidents, you know, Lincoln was no dummy, of course. He had to be a self-taught person, and yet he taught himself and he taught himself how to be a lawyer, and he was, by all accounts, quite a brilliant lawyer and brilliant speaker. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, like you say, it's... You know, I, I want to conclude this... Um, but I do want to give you the last word. But I want to say this. As I reflect back on this, these 20 minutes that we've been talking about the human side of leadership, I'm reminded that today we tend to disparage leaders, not just Donald Trump. We, we, we disparage corporate leaders, even big shot nonprofit leaders, as emblematic of the gap between rich and poor. And we may overgeneralize from the, you know, the media trumpets, the bad actors. And so we kind of generalize into thinking that, uh, you know, most leaders' wealth is ill-begotten. That honestly does not comport with my experience. Most leaders, they're not saints. They succumb to the same ethical temptations we all do. They can cut corners. They can withhold full disclosure and so on. But at least in my experience, as a group, leaders are intelligent. They are certainly diligent. And they are, and this may surprise some people, they're usually driven as much by wanting to make a difference as by wanting to make more money. So at least in my view, you could do worse than to look at the leaders in your life, whether they're in your personal life or you view them on the media, without, at least let me at least be moderate and say, without a jaundiced eye. I want you to get the last word. What is your honest, not puffy, but fair-minded overall description of leadership? To what extent do you agree or disagree with what I just said? I think that um, whether they're brilliant or not, they typically are, they're doing something right, because you don't keep your leadership position if you're not. So if you're not working hard and you're not smart and you're doing stupid things, you don't generally get to keep the position. Um, I think one one of the most important leadership lessons that I ever learned Mm. was from the person who hired me. And his philosophy was always hire people who are better than you are yeah. or smarter than you are. Yeah, no question. Those are Now, he said that. I thought he was really, really smart. So I'm not sure that, that he was necessarily hiring people who were smarter than he was. But that's critical, hiring well, yep. because hiring badly can cost you your job. Absolutely. That takes us to tactics. Let's spend a little time talking about some tactics, and I want to get your reaction. I, I made a list of a few that are, you know, I, I, as you know, I tweet. And uh, the, I, the, the main reason I tweet, in addition, because it's an easy way to promulgate some of the, my better ideas, it creates an archive of what I, you know, a concise version of my best ideas. So I'm going to share with you, I've got a half dozen, and I'd like to share, they're very short, obviously, they're tweets, 
and I'd love your honest reactions. Certainly feel free, as always, to disagree. But first, I should let our listeners know, you're listening to, listening to work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco. We have been discussing the human side of leadership, um, which was triggered by a book that Barbara and I read by Doris Kearns Goodwin, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, called Leadership, in which she described especially the human sides of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, and Lyndon Johnson. Um, Barbara moved us into the area of tactics, and I couldn't agree more with her statement about hiring people better than you, or at least I like to use the term hire slow and fire fast. Take all the time you need to find a really great person because you can't, no leader can do a great job with, uh, uh, with, with, weak, with weak workers, and that is maybe the most important thing he does. And then when you've made a mistake, own up to your mistake, and ideally instead of fire the person, try to counsel them out. So that was uh, your first tip, and I totally agree. Um, I now want to share another tip, and I'd like to get your reaction. Uh, I was quoted this week in the New York Times, and um, what I said was that the path forward for leaders and for anybody is normally marked not by a lot of thinking, but by low-risk actions, what I call ready-fire aim. Reaction, Barbara? Um, I'm trying to process that. Let me do it again. Okay, right. If you if you're having problem processing it, I'm sure the listeners are. Um, I was quoted, as I said, in the New York Times, and I, I said the path forward when you're stuck is normally marked not by a lot of thinking, but by taking low risk actions, what I call ready fire aim. And I will just give an example. The example I always love to use is if I am a sailor who's trying to get from San Francisco Harbor to Hawaii. Yes, I should do a moderate amount of planning. But if, I, if my clone kept planning and planning and planning and planning, where I, after just a moderate amount of planning, sailed, sailed off, I will have to make my change, changes based on the weather that I see, the winds changing, etc. So you don't want to do excessive planning, but take that low-risk action, which was to slowly leave San Francisco Harbor. And that's true. That's, I believe, analogous to what I've seen most of my successful um, leadership clients have been like. What's your reaction to that that recommendation about ready, fire, aim? I think when the outcome is so excellent or so important, then yes, you need to start taking some steps to move in that direction, trying to bring other people along with you. I'm trying to think of an initiative that we brought on um, and, and I think this also has to do with um, being willing to take some risks, but recognizing opportunity where it exists and jumping on it. I want to be more specific because I'm, I'm not feeling this is that enough responsive enough. So let's say, let's take your example. You're in education. You're, you're, lately, you've been focusing a great deal on how to bring technology to individualized preschools. So let's say, for example, you know, you, I know I'm, I'm using facts here. You had visited a high school robotics competition where the kids were designing robots and use, really developing engineering skills and using a healthy competition, etc. And so let's say you were musing on how to potentially, is there some version of that that could be done in a preschool? You could spend the rest of your life planning that, but rather... I believe you did a quick and dirty review of what's out there. You found something that seemed okay, and you're piloting it. That is ready, fire, aim, rather than ready, aim, fire. What do you, is, that an, is that an analogy appropriate? 
Uh, well, it is, except that we don't have any robotics in our preschool okay, but, yet. But know. we did bring them down to elementary school, and okay. yes, we did it with with some... Because that's a no-risk strategy. You find somebody I mean. who's interested in doing it, you give them the appropriate stuff, and if it doesn't work, then that's it. If it does work, then you can expand it. That's the low-risk action thing. Let's, uh, I'm right. going to give out the phone number again. If you are a leader, a manager, or know somebody, and you either want to talk about the human side of that, or you have a problem or an issue regarding your work as a manager or leader, I invite you to call. You'll get two for the price of one. Barbara and Emco, a real leader, and me who just plays one on radio and is a coach. You know, we, we coaches, we don't know anything. We just coach people. Anyway, the phone number here, work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. The second of the six tweets that, about, that relate to leadership that I wanted to run by you is this. In today's praised de-hierarchical leadership style, a leader can still order their supervisees to do whatever, X, without a lot of mollycoddling, a lot of consensus building, well, a lot of the resultant turgidity and mediocrity-yielding practices. Just gather the needed information and with a positive tone, explain your decision. Done. What's your reaction to that tweet? Ouch. <laughs> I think that's not a great idea. Go ahead. That's, that's why you're on the show. You're not here just to be a yes person. Um, I, I think that when you want to get something done that everybody, you don't think that everybody's kind of going along with you. Um, you don't just tell them, well, you can tell them that, that we're going to do this and here's why. I think this is really important. These are what I see as the benefits. This is why I think we need to do it. But then you have to make it palatable for people to change in a direction they don't necessarily want to go. Mm. And so one way to do it is to give them time to process, to say, now, we're not going to do this tomorrow morning. We're going to think about it for a while. I'm going to give you the tools that you're going to use uh, and play with them, learn how to use them, and then we'll uh, talk in two months about what, what the implementation plan is. And then I think it's what we did when we moved to digital early literacy, we said, okay, um, we're going to show you how to do this, but we're also going to have someone whose services will be available as an individual coach. So as you're learning a new skill that we want you to implement, uh, we have somebody who will be able to come in and help you. She won't, he or she won't come in unless you ask, but if you feel that maybe you need a little extra help, they're available to you. So that made it e more comforting that I wasn't going to, you know, nobody was going to screw up terribly because the help was around and available. Third thing was carrots and sticks. If the carrot was, if you do this, there will be a one-time uh, stipend for learning this whole new strategy. And then the stick became uh, later that after we've had a year or so of implementing, then if you aren't doing it, then that becomes part of your evaluation. So there was a reason to move forward that was positive, and there was a reason why you kind of had to move forward, but at least you had a stipend to look forward to. Okay. I'm going to move on to the next of my six leadership-related uh, tweets. Um, 
Many of my most successful and contributory clients feel that their spouse, and this could be male or female, has hurt their ability to make a difference. The spouse wants to spend more, forcing the earner into activities that are more lucrative than contributory, and to reallocate time to family, which the leader feels less benefit, yields less benefit. Reaction, Barbara? Well, again, that's why I said that how what kind of a leader you can be largely depends on where you are in the life cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have small children at home, I, it's understandable to me that the spouse would say, hey, we have these kids together. We decided to have these kids, and I don't want to be a single parent. Mm-hmm. So that is an issue. I think if only one person is a wage earner and the other person is not a wage earner but is a wage spender, that gets pretty unfair. And it isn't right to force the one to have to do a lot of jobs that he doesn't, he or she doesn't want to do just because the money is being spent. I think that's got to be, should be a negotiation. Okay. The uh, fifth of the six items, um, this is ap- applicable to everybody, but people who are in authority have more opportunity to use this, but it's also relevant to a p- personal life. This is a tweet again about a tweet of the kind of practical tips, which we're now moving toward here. If you are more what I call ideationally fluent, that is you come, with idea, come up with a good ideas quickly, if you are more ideationally fluent than the person you're talking with, which could easily, for example, be a supervisee, when trying to get that person to decide on something, ask, which of these two or three seem wisest? And if you think one of those two or three is the wisest, state it last, because people tend to choose the last choice offered. What's your reaction to that? So we're trying to kind of... um trick the person into choosing the one we like? In a subtle way. It's nothing very overt, but yes, you know, none of us are purely unbiased, so you're being as neutral as you can be, not neutral, you're the one who's more ideationally fluent, and let's say you've, you know, your, your, your co-worker, your, your supervisee is not able to come up with a good solution to the problem. So she's, or he is stuck, so you say, you know, I'm wondering if either any of these two or three appeal to you. So you lay out two or three, and if privately you really are rooting for one of them, it's not so terrible to list it. I was, I've been watching the politicians on C-SPAN during their campaign. Talk about manipulation. They are really, every word has been focus group marketing tested and, you know, made sure it appeals to the broadest swath of the swing voters. That's manipulative. But simply listing the, your favorite of three choices last is rather a venial sin, wouldn't you say? No, I would totally agree with that. Sure. I, I wouldn't see anything wrong with that. Okay. I thought you were. I was feeling defensive, like you were criticizing it. Okay. But what do you think of the general concept? No, I was of, just making sure that that was the purpose of doing it, oh, so right. that okay. the supervisee would agree. They would choose that one, you and were now hoping you that, say, yes. well, great, we both agree on this. But if they chose one of the first or the second one, I've given them the choice. I've got to live with the consequences, right. you know? Um, but what do you think of the idea of when... You know, the standard psychologist's advice is to resist giving advice. And many people feel it's denying their agency to be getting advice. If I want your advice, I'll ask for it. So here I am being very different. I'm saying you're dealing with somebody who is not great at coming up with ideas in general, but in specific here as well. 
And what I'm saying is a, a strategy for that situation, if you are more ideationally fluent, is to come up with two or three ideas and say, which do you like best? I think that's a very potent leadership strategy and in general. What do you think, Barb? No, it works with two-year-olds also. Exactly. Which, one, which pajamas do you want, the pink ones or the red ones? Not exactly. do you want pajamas. Exactly. Um, and a, a, a related tip, which is another tweet I wrote, which is when a person doesn't take your advice, let's say you gave them three choices and they don't like any of them, or mm-hmm. you, you can't resist, you don't want to give them three choices, you say, damn it, you should do X. Uh, or you know, you're, even if it's more tactful. You, you know, I'm wondering whether you should do X. What do you think? You know, and, and they haven't done it. Well, you've got to take solace in your possibly have, having planted a seed. Surprisingly often, weeks or months later, the person will implement your idea and maybe even think it was her idea or his idea. What do you think of that tweet? Oh, I love that. I mean, I've lived by that for a long time, that you're not changing people's minds instantaneously. You are always planting seeds. And then you leave it alone for a while, and then a couple of weeks later you come back and you say something similar. And it's not surprising that sometime later that person will say it back to you but at this point, they've forgotten it was your idea. They think it was theirs, and then everything moves ahead smoothly. Exactly. So, again, uh, somebody once said, it's incredible how much can be accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. It's, it's a corny say, but it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'd like to give out the phone number. If you have a work-related problem, I do what are called workovers here on the show. And with Barbara Nemco here, we do what are called workovers on the show. The show is Work with Marty Nemco. And... Uh, uh, whatever your work-life problem, especially if it's related to your, your job as a manager or a leader, or in your dealing with a manager or a leader, or, as usual, if you are just com- completely career stuck, stuck with some aspect of your career, you can call in for a workover. The price is certainly right. Zero, zip, nada, whether you're 16 or 76, for-profit, non-profit, or government, self-employed, want to run Shark Tank idea by me. I don't have quite as sharp teeth as uh, Mr. Wonderful on... Uh, on, uh, on Shark Tank. All those are good reasons to call. Work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco and KALW. 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. I want to now turn to another angle on this leadership thing. Um, I, uh, one of the uh, websites that I frequent is something called Quora. The Quora is great because they send me... Um, these are questions that anybody can ask and post and people respond. And I, you know, you, when you sign up, you can sign up so that they will only, they will send you an email when there is a question on a topic that you've expressed interest in. And of course, work is one of mine. And this was, um, this is, I'm going to present two ends of a continuum. This Quora response is, the, the question was, what does a typical day look like? for a consultant working at Bain or McKinsey. Bain and McKinsey are the two, two of the leading consulting firms in the world. And this is an example of somebody who clearly is going to be a leader. And, and he walks through his day from the minute he gets up to the minute he goes to sleep. And then I'm going to parallel that with something else that I think you'll find amusing, if not eye-opening. So, this is, he signed his name. His name is Harish Sarundaranjan. I'm sure I butchered that name. Uh, I want to get it right. Sir Sound Soundaranajan. He works for McKinsey, uh, and he's now in his fifth year at McKinsey. He said, I and Barbara, I'm gonna want to of course get your reactions to, to any of this. I was an associate in McKinsey, India, in Chennai, and in US in their New York City offices, and here is my typical day. 
He says, now I am an engagement manager in Boston. So he's, this is, he is a, he's kind of a middle manager uh, at, after five years at, um, at McKinsey. 7.30 a.m., wake up, do a quick email scan to figure out if there's any firefighting that needs to be done and to check if the visual graphics department has made the right pages. Once everything is in order, leave for a 30 to 45 minute jog. 8.45 a.m., quick shower, breakfast, head to office to meet the team or to the client site to start the day. While in car, catch up on news, talk with wife or parents, flip through the pages from the uh, problem-solving session yesterday and do a quick mental plan for the day ahead. 10 a.m., check in with engagement manager on the key deliverables for the day along with any scheduled calls uh, with experts, internal or otherwise, and problem-solving sessions with partners. 10.30, work on the deliverables or drive toward answering key questions under debate. Draw a few pages on a sheet of paper, click photos on iPhone, and ship to visual graphics to hash out the pages. Instruct R&I, I guess that's research and something, department on the questions for which you're seeking answers and set tight deadlines for the data. 1 p.m., lunch ordered in by via some delivery app or in the client site office. Try to get healthy, filling, and interesting food each day. Discuss current affairs, past engagements, or sports with team when on lunch. 1.30, that's a half hour later. Quick check-in with engagement manager. Put together four pages for the partner problem-solving session. Send the pages to the partner and get an expert call on to discuss the cutting-edge issue you're trying to understand. 3 p.m., partner problem-solving. Partner, I guess, would be your customer. When you're trying to bring structure to your client's key issues, button up the analysis that helps build the financial outlook for the client's future and engage in a discussion to understand insightful ways to secure the client's financial future. 5 o'clock, implement the partner comments. Send the pages to visual graphics for quick alignment, then send the pages to the client for a discussion on this topic tomorrow. Meet some client team members, try to get more data to support your analysis, answer any top-of-mind questions they might have, and promise them a deep discussion on the topic tomorrow from your analysis. 7 p.m. Snacks. Team check-in with the engagement manager, and head back to the hotel if you want or continue to work from the team room. 8 p.m. Hit the gym and pool for a relaxing short workout, followed by dinner and some online entertainment, usually some video on demand. 9.30. Quick email check. Analysis, completion, and any problem structuring that's needed for tomorrow's work. Send the latest deck to the manager and give key insights up front. 10.30, read a book, relax and unwind. 11.30, sleep. He then writes, well, of course, no two days are the same. And, right. and believe me, if there's some firefighting to do, your day goes for complete loss. I have had 20-hour days and sometimes, often, 10-hour days. It all depends upon the above, but 12 is the most frequent. In my McKinsey life... Every day has been fresh, interesting, and a learning process. I've been enjoying every second. Reactions, Barbara Nemco? Uh, I think that is what makes jobs so fascinating that you never want to leave them. The fact that you're not doing the same thing every day, that you never know exactly what's going to happen in a given day, no matter how carefully you've planned it, something's come up, uh, and you have to stop what you're doing and deal with the things that have come up. And that's fascinating. Of course, work-life balance people would say that's outrageous. How dare the company make him work those 12 hours a day on average that appear to be quite, you know, chock full of stuff. What's your reaction to that? Well, I I suspect they're not making him work 12 hours a day. Um, I suspect that he's probably wanting to work that way. If he he wouldn't be working for McKinsey, I think that is the norm. 
uh, you know, he would not be able to work for a leading company. Right, that's and so he took that job probably knowing that that's what it would mean. Now, I wanted to express as a contrast, it's really pretty funny. There is a magazine now called California Sunday, and one of my listeners, his name is Mark Mackler, he's frequently sending me stuff, and he sent me from the June 2nd issue of California Sunday an article about young people and uh, in, the, in the job market. And these were, um, these were, I guess, a little brief. Didn't understandably, this person, these two people, didn't put their last name. But uh, this one, her her name is Liv, as in like Liv Ullman, and it says just as Liv, twenty three years old. And the title of what she wrote was, "It's okay to lie a little." Last October, I moved to the Bay Area and started looking for a job. I had worked at the library all four years in college, so I applied for jobs at libraries. That was hard because I don't have a master's in library science. And I was also looking at barista jobs. And though I hadn't worked as a barista, I had worked in customer experience and retail. But everything from those barista jobs to those entry-level publishing and library jobs would ask for a couple of years of experience, at least a year. Well, on my resume, I've learned to lie about how much work I've done. I'm in favor of lying, too. It's, you know, it's counterbalancing the pre-existing power structures where certain kinds of experiences are valued and other kinds are not. And going into view as a woman, I frequently felt nervous thinking, well, I'm obviously not qualified. No one's going to take me seriously. Yet I know so many men who know Jack. So it's important to counterbalance, to talk the talk on your resume because everybody else is going to do it. What's your reaction to Liv's... She's rather a different, a different mindset than our... Uh, our McKinsey person. Any reaction to that? Um, no, I don't really. No. Do you agree with her? Do you disagree with her? You were spacing out? <laughs> I think I was spacing out. I knew that. I had a feeling. <laughs> she was saying, you know, I have had no experience. I, you know, I, I moved. She didn't even say she had a college. She, she may have had a liberal arts bachelor's degree, but she liked the idea of working in libraries because she thought it was cushy, but she had no library experience, so she lied. And then she thought, you know, I also, if, if worse comes to worse, I want to work as a barista, but I've had no barista experience, so I lied. She says, it's okay. And I'm going to read now the operative word. But she says, I'm in favor of lying. Yeah, I would think that's kind of awkward. But once you're lying about your experience and you don't know how to do it, you're going to get found out pretty quickly. Maybe. Or maybe. Let's forget about the expediency. Let's talk about it. She wrote what was really the interesting part of her life. She says, I'm in favor of lying. It's counterbalancing pre-existing power structures where certain kinds of experience are valued and other kinds not. Okay, now I know why I was spacing out. Because I have been watching a very interesting show on Netflix called Younger, and it's about a forty-something-year-old woman who wants to go back into the into the workplace after a fifteen or eighteen-year absence to raise children. And she was in publishing, and she cannot get a job because nobody's going to get past the fact that she has a fifteen-year gap in her resume. And so a friend tells her, "Lie. Tell them you're twenty-six." and put in all the experience you had before, and she gets hired immediately. And it's a very interesting contrast between what, how people in their 40s act and being in this workplace with all these young people. Well, of course, the, the expedience is one thing. There's no question that lying works, at least in the short term, in many cases. The question is, do we just throw ethics out? But what was more interesting was the last sentence. She said, she says, 
remember, certain kinds of experiences are valued and other kinds are not. Isn't relevant experience? She made it sound like all experiences equal. And then she wrote, and going into interviews as a woman, I have frequently felt nervous thinking, well, I'm obviously not qualified. No one's going to take me seriously. Yet I know so many men who know Jack. It's important to counterbalance by doing that on your resume. Everybody else is going to do it. What's your reaction to that? I, I hate it. Um, first of all, I think that in today's era, this notion that women aren't taken seriously, I have a really hard time with. Uh, maybe 40 years ago, there was more of that going on. Today, it, particularly, I'm in public education. It's mostly women. It's in, kind in of leadership? a joke in our office in how leadership? Few men there are. How about the superintendents of school, the number one person? You know, we talked about many women choose work-life balance. Of the fifty, you mentioned there were fifty-seven county superintendents of school. How many are women? Um, probably half. And as I look, let me just talk about in Napa County. When I first started, there are five school districts and one county office, so that's six education agencies, and only one of them was only in only one was the superintendent a woman and she was superintendent of the tiny district that only had 57 kids every other superintendent was a man fast forward to today the only man who's a superintendent is of that 57 kid district and every other superintendent is a woman so there has been an enormous change and i've only been at the county for 27 years total so that's a, a massive change and not a terribly long period of time. I want to talk about two more of the people in California, Sundays, June 2nd. Where these are uh, people who are uh, uh, millennials who are, um, are not millennials. I guess they would be Gen Zs. Yeah, millennials. Yeah, yeah. Um, who are, are being honest about their experience in the workplace and what they're willing to do. This one, and this is a con- contrast with, I'm going to try to say his name again because I'm a glutton for punishment, uh, Harish Sarandajan, who in Quora worked for McKin- works for McKinsey in his sixth year uh, or fifth year as a, uh, uh, a manager now, and, uh, who we talked about working really seemingly very solidly from 7.30 in the morning until uh, uh, mm-hmm. 10. So this is, a tw- this is titled the, in this article, The 23-Year-Old Woman Who Pretends to Do Paperwork. When I first started to look for a job, my expectations of, I hope I get a job I love, flew out the window. I was seeing all these positions where you expected to collapse your whole life into your job, and I avoided them because I wanted to guard my time outside of work. I'm one of those people in my work who doesn't harbor any guilt about working as little as possible. In fact, I advocate stealing as much time and money from your employer as you can. Sometimes that might, and this really doesn't surprise me, because so often the colleges and media portray the worker, the, the, the management and the company as evil. So they're, they're feeling it's Robin Hood, justified. She, I'm going to continue reading from this person. There's no name. It just says, it's just a quote from this person. Sometimes at my desk, I take an hour to read and pretend I'm looking at paperwork. It's almost like hiding a comic book inside a textbook. I'll have reimbursement paperwork in one hand, and a novel in my other hand. And if a boss walks by, I'll just cover up the book. I work with so many people who don't want to leave their desks too long or who work through lunch. I don't think that's the reason they're not taking lunch. It's all they really care about. They don't care about the reimbursement. They just feel they got to do really well at their job. But you can do mediocre at your job, and that's okay. Mm. Right? 
this is, to me, emblematic. There is a war that is an unspoken war between management and workers. You know, managers don't usually get promoted to leadership unless they are harder working and have bought the system, for better or worse. And many workers, especially young workers who have been educated today in today's colleges and listening or watching or reading into much of today's media, have been taught to hate the man. So there is this huge and I believe growing conflict. And as part of it's the management's fault because, of course, loyalty is out the window. Employers part-time. They temp. They offshore. They lie and they lie and say our people are our most important product. And then they go and lay off people left, right, and center when they can uh, hire instead of raise it using paying the, the living wage of San Francisco, they can hire an automated barista or burger flipper or whatever. So there is legitimate grounds on both sides, management and worker, to hate each other and to try to screw each other. And I think these, these you know, it's rare you see in print such a candid admission of how much screwing around the worker does. By the way, there was a statistic that I read maybe a month ago on this radio show that said the average full-time worker bee works 2.27 hours out of the eight-hour day. So there is this huge tension between management and workers. Do you sense that at all? Or, or, or again, they're trying to hide your, your management, your leadership. They would try to hide it from you. But from your perspective or your, maybe your conversations with other leaders, do you sense that there is a schism that's serious between labor and management, especially young workers? I have to say I'm not seeing that. Um, and we have a lot of young people because we have an AmeriCorps program. So there are people who have graduated from college and want to spend a year, sometimes two, doing something a little bit different, and they want to give back, and they come to work for us. And I think they get something like $600 a month, which is barely, it's right. not livable. Right. Um, and they work very hard because they love what they're doing. They're working with, with kids. They're running after-school mm-hmm. programs. They're running summer camps. I think that's different. You know, most Maybe, jobs... Maybe, but are, these are young people, too, and this is yeah, what they're choosing. But it's different so. when you're following your passion. If you're, Most jobs are, you are some anonymous cog in a wheel. You are a customer service. You know, now they call them customer success manager or customer success worker. You're answering phones, dealing with angry people who, who are rightfully complaining the software doesn't work. Or they are coordinators handling massive databases and entering data and uh, or bills for visa or whatever, you know, accounts receivable. You know, most people don't have the cool, oh, yeah, I'm setting up summer camps and I'm working with kids. And so now I'm trying to be fair to the worker. You know, all this, this dream, dream big, you can be what you want, that you're told in college and by counselors. And they get in the real world and they're working at Enterprise Rent-A-Car on, on the swing shift. You know, so there's understandable resentment on all sides. Is that a fair assertion? I think that's probably a fair statement, and I think there are some jobs that are probably unutterably boring, and people who have them are, I'm sure, not motivated to give 110%. Yeah. Speaking of which, I, the, this article in California Sunday um, that my uh, listener, Mark Mackler, uh, sent, he gave a third example. This one is titled, The 22-Year-Old Who Pads His Hours. I'll read you the quote again. When I log my hours every week, I just straight up pad it. I've always done it. I pad it to make it look like the schedule of somebody with a full workload because I'm not trying to work more. 
When my manager asks me how things are going, I always give a neutral response. Uh, I have enough work. I'm not unhappy, not happy. I don't want to seem overworked or underworked. I kind of just exist there. It's a place for me to make money. My company bleeds its employees dry. Management could hire more people, but they know that people can handle it. It's a big meat grinder. A lot of my friends work 50, 60 hours a week because they're given that much work. But I say you owe the company 40 hours. They pay you for it and nothing more. So that was the guy who pads his hours. Any reaction to that? Ick. But again, I think there's a culture in the workplace. And if you, as the leader, try and make it a really positive culture, if you a catch your employees doing something right and recognize them for it if you uh, emphasize the good that the work is doing for other people then hopefully people are not trying to get away with stuff they're trying to do a good job because they believe in what they're doing again there are some jobs that are probably so incredibly boring that it wouldn't be possible like I think about standing behind the rental counter um, when people are renting cars at the airport. And all day long, people are coming in, and they're in a rush, and they're cranky, and they want to get out. And what do you mean you don't have my reservation? That'd be a hard job. Well, let's take a more typical example. We're just about out of time. But, you know, we, we're on, in Silicon Valley, which, of course, is now extended to the entire Bay Area. You know, so much, so many jobs are about software. And it's not like changing your life software. It's some software that's going to enable a company to keep better track of customers or software that goes incrementally fast, version 7.0, and they're rushing to get it to market faster, and it's buggy, and the documentation is trying to cover up the fact that the software's got all kinds of bugs, and that everybody who's involved in that, from the accountants to the, to the software developers to the customer service people to the people who, uh, um, who, do, who try to pitch investors... They're all quietly feeling, this is a house of cards, this is a bunch of BS. Even the wine industry in Napa, how do you, you know, so much of it, because nobody can, most people can't tell the difference between $5 wine and $100 wine. We have just a few seconds left. What do you say to, the, to that zillions of people who have just, not standing in enterprise rent-a-car, but just an average job? I think in most industries there are career ladders and there are ways to move up. I think if you do a good job and and show yourself to be better than average, that's a good that will open some opportunities for you. I think you try to find some emotional satisfaction just by dealing with your colleagues and seeing if there are some friends that you can make as part of this job to make it more pleasant. Nobody wants to get up in the morning and get dressed and go someplace where they're miserable. But at least, I can remember some boring jobs, but what made them tolerable was taking breaks with your colleagues. Even though the break was only 15 minutes, uh, you got to talk with somebody that you liked and having lunch with them and walking to the bus together or whatever. But finding something human in that job that makes it not so awful that you want to be 
uh, trying to get away with stuff every minute of every day. Well, it was certainly, um, it was not a pain having you on the show. Uh, was oh, not, but that is the show, and um, that is work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco for this week. I want to thank my board operator, Joanne Marr, and of course, all of you for listening. Please join me again next Thursday. You can call in for a workover, plus Siobhan O'Brien on what it's really like to be an elder caregiver. Until then, this is Marty Nemco for Barbara Nemco, reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. <laughs>